Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Hello and welcome to our new short format servings of consciously prepared brain food designed to improve your mental fitness. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen, your host. For more than 12 years, we've been proudly and consistently crafting Harvesting Happiness and sharing it with you. Each week, we spotlight diverse thinkers and doers who are contemporary trendsetters and change agents devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. We invite you to listen up and change the way you think about human happiness. Our award-winning content is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Alrighty then, let's dive in. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where you will learn about story crafting, using brain science to share our narratives. My guest today is Lisa Crone. She is the author of Story or Die, How to Use Brain Science to Engage, Persuade, and Change Minds in Business and in Life. But first, let me give you a little bit about Lisa. She is the author of Wired for Story, Story Genius, and most recently, Story or Die. Lisa spent a decade in publishing and has been a literary agent, television producer, and story analyst for Hollywood Studios. She served on the faculty of the School of Visual Arts MFA program in visual narrative and since 2006 has taught in the UCLA Extension Writers Program. Lisa, you are in the house and let's just get at this because we got only a few minutes to cover everything. (laughs) (laughs) The the quantum (laughs) of everything wired for story. Let's talk about how it is ingrained. It's in our DNA to be a natural storyteller. Absolutely. We are wired for story because narrative story is how we make sense of everything. It's actually built into the architecture of our brain. Just think of story as the world's first virtual reality, you know, minus that, that geeky visor. Because what we are wired to do is tacitly evaluate everything based on one very simple metric. And that is, how will this affect me, whether it's an event that's happening or something that somebody wants you to believe? How will this affect me given my agenda? Is it going to help me or is it going to hurt me? In other words, what we're really looking for is, will it keep me safe? And we evaluate tacitly everything that way. It is story that gives context and meaning to everything that happens to us. And again, it is literally how we evaluate everything. It is our own personal narrative, what I call our decoder ring that we use to make sense of things, not just what's happening, but the meaning that we read into it and therefore what we should do about it. And it dawns on me as you're talking about safety, you know, I immediately think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And it's like when our base is not secure, it's pretty hard to reach higher levels of actualization. So the the notion that we craft a story to help keep ourselves safe. And in some, in some cases, it's the illusion, right? Mm-hmm. That we're keeping oh. ourselves safe through the story. No kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the Most lies we the tell time, ourselves. Sadly. Yeah, but here's the thing. To us, they're not lies. To us, they are things that we learned early in life that kept us safe. And I'm really glad you brought up Maslow's hierarchy of needs because 
you know, the, the bottom of that hierarchy is food, water, shelter. Like that's the first thing we need. And that's really not true because the first thing we need when you think of us as babies and small children is someone who cares enough about us to give us those things because obviously as babies, we can't get them ourselves. And so from the time we're tiny, we are trying to figure out how the world works, not to sound totally transactional, but how do I get my needs met? And that's where what I like to call misbeliefs can come from because we tend to think by, you know, by definition that the family we're born into is the way everybody is. The world that we're born into is <laughs> the objective world. So, you know, when we learn something, you know, if I cry real loud, that nice person's going to come in and give me milk. That becomes part of how we see the world. It's a pattern that we have now really realized is out there objectively. And then it gets put into what's known as our cognitive unconscious. And that is the lens that we use to make sense of everything and to read meaning into things. So absolutely, but it starts very early in life. And this is the last thing I'll say in this is that we have what's known as an avidity for patternicity, which is why you should never use a $25 word because like, what oof, does that mean? Oof. Wait, we should, we should pause for a second yes. and like okay. do the word of the day. <laughs> exactly. But avidity for patternicity means from the time that we're born, we're looking for causality. If this, then that. And once like I said, with, you know, if I cry real loud, that nice person will bring me milk. Or if I go to bed at night, I can pretty much trust that the sun is going to come up in the morning. We don't have to think about it at all. It just becomes what we think of as the way the objective world out there is. That's objective reality. And the thing about the sun, hopefully, like is objective reality. But a lot of the other things we take in is simply the way our family does it, or our culture does it, or our religion says it. It isn't pan-human. And the problem is we tend to go out and think it is pan-human, and people who don't do those things or don't believe those things need a lot of help, right? We hope they get a lot of therapy, and then they can join us over here in real reality real soon. <laughs> and the truth is, it's all the meaning we're reading into it. And each one of us has a different, as I like to say, decoder ring that we use to read meaning into the facts that we get. Let's talk a little bit about storytelling and the need to belong. Because oftentimes the story that we tell emanates from this need of, of wanting and truly needing to, to, to belong to the tribe, to fit in. Exactly. I mean, that is where we get all of our meaning because again, we were, if I could just say for one sec, a little bit of a little bit of history. Um, about a hundred thousand years ago, when our brain had that last big growth spurt, um, you know, for a long time, we, you were taught. I was probably, or I was taught, you were probably taught that that was, you know, when we got the ability to think rationally, to think analytically. Huh. And what evolutionary biologists know now is that did happen then. But really, it was at that point that nature realized, you know, to a certain degree, we could we could survive very rudimentarily. You know, we weren't we're going to run if a lion came. We, we saw a cliff. We weren't going to keep walking. And if we wanted to do what we've since done, which is, for better or worse, take over the world, we needed to learn to do that thing that they've been telling us to do since kindergarten. And we needed to learn to work well with others. And at that point, the need to belong to a group became as hardwired as our need for food, water, and shelter. Yeah. And you know, the, the takeaway is, is that we don't turn to story to escape reality. We turn to story to navigate reality. That is, 
how do we do what we need to do in order to be accepted by our, to use that word that everybody's using these days, tribe. And that is not only hardwired, but when somebody asks us to do something that is the opposite of what our tribe believes, like just even, even like, let's say, and this is something we're all seeing so much, you know, these days out there in the world, you know, the two different political sides are just, you know, at each other's throats all the time. And when somebody says something that challenges your belief just a little bit, what happens in your brain is your brain reacts to that. As if that person has come at you with a with a yeah. baseball bat and Risk. they're gonna try to take you down. Risking your safety. Exactly. And that's it's like you don't decide to get mad or that thing, the thing that gets to me the most, where they'll say, Oh, you're just being emotional, which of course emotion is something that's deeply misunderstood as well. You didn't even make the decision to get mad. Your body took it out of your hands because it's your brain's goal. Your brain took it out of your hands because its goal is to keep you safe. And that isn't just like your physical body, but also your sense of self and who you are. I mean, here's a a fun fact. When somebody says something that really challenges a deeply held belief, (laughs) the blood rushes to your thighs in case you need to make a quick getaway. So interesting. Yeah, I think it really helps to know that because it means that that person who's getting angry or when you get angry, it's not that there's something wrong with you. It's not that you're self-centered or stubborn or or dumb. Well, maybe. That's your body. Yeah, that's true. You might be, (laughs) I like to say it is tragically misinformed. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes. You very well might be tragically misinformed. But but it isn't because, it, it isn't because you are doing anything wrong per se. Your body has done that to you. And I think knowing that really helps us have the self-compassion that we need in order to start questioning it. Because let's face it, change of any kind and you know certainly change in a belief system is really hard because it is so deeply inculcated and it's biological. It isn't just, you can just decide to change your mind. Well, I think what you're saying is essentially the fight or flight response kicks in, the reptilian part of the brain is telling us there's stranger danger or the uh, saber-toothed tiger is lurking, Mm -hmm. which then um, takes us out of our rational mind. It disconnects from the prefrontal cortex, right? The executive functioning or the dashboard of the brain. Yes, except that they have really kind of gotten rid of the old reptilian and, you know, and the the, the, the analytical, I mean, it, it isn't, it's all one thing. And at the end of the day, the better one, quote unquote, isn't what we think of as the rational part. They're not separate. It's it's I think the biggest (laughs) the biggest fallacy, the thing that's taken us down is basically (laughs) the fact that the cornerstone of Western civilization, you know, from Plato onward is just tragically wrong. That notion of it's you know, it's it's reason and logic versus emotion and it's binary. And the sole goal of emotion is to simply subvert reason and make you do that, you know, make you do that thing that you're going to deeply regret in the in the morning. And that just literally isn't true. Every decision we make, we make based on emotion. And what emotion does is emotion telegraphs meaning. Emotion lets you know what the things that are happening mean to you so that you understand in a nanosecond what you may or may not do about it. I think it's sort of like, you know, we're taught 
that you know, if you want to make a decision, any decision, what you want to do is marshal all the facts, all the figures, all the data, so you can analyze it dispassionately in the cold light of objective reason. And while you're doing that, you know, you've got to keep emotion at bay because emotion is that irascible scamp and it's going to tiptoe in, cloud your judgment, and you know, you really will buy that pony. But <laughs> But the truth is, while that is, and let's face it, it's a great model. It's like, how many times have you been told that it is your ability to think rationally that makes you the master of your own ship? It's a great model. It just turns out not to be true. We don't make decisions based on our rational analysis of the situation. We make decisions based on how that rational analysis makes us feel. So, So I'm not saying it's the other way around. I'm not saying, you know, we were taught it was binary, you know, rational logic versus emotion, you know, either or. I'm not saying let's switch it and to hell with rational logic. It's just, you know, it's just emotion all the way. It's both and. But emotion is always the decider. And emotion follows action, right? So once we take a decision, also mm-hmm. the, the emotion follows whatever movement or action that we choose. It works both ways. Uh, this is what I'm hearing, right? Emotion may, may play a part in our decision-making process, mm-hmm. but then how we shift emotion is predicated upon the actions that we choose. And what we learn from them. Absolutely. The meaning-making. I mean, yes. Right. Exactly. I mean, and that is the point, is that once something happens and either, I mean, in stories often, <laughs> what we think is going to fix it only makes it worse. And then that challenges something and we have to figure out, wait a minute, I felt that was the right thing to do and it didn't quite work out. So why not? What happened? And often, I mean, the way I define story, and this is in in the world, I mean, it's, it's in literature, it's novels, do it, books do it, movies do it. But, you know, we were wired for story long before there was <laughs> novels or books or, you know, or movies. And what a story basically is, and this is how we learn anything in life, is when we have to face a problem that we can't avoid, but something in our belief system has to shift in order for us to be able to solve it. That is what stories are about. They're not about what we do. They're not about the action we take. They're about a shift in belief that allows us to take that action. In other words, it's not about what happens. It's about how what happens affects someone and affects their belief system. And that's how we learned how to survive. That's the only way we change. When something slams up against a belief we've already got, and in order to solve that problem, we have to question that belief. Because as we said earlier, there are a lot of things we learn very early in life that helped us survive in a family situation, let's say, or a cultural situation or religious situation that just aren't so. And we are going to take a pause right now. And when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Lisa Kron. We're talking about her book, Story or Die, How to Use Brain Science to Engage, Persuade, and Change Minds in Business and in Life. To learn more, please visit wiredforstory.com. You can find Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kron and on Instagram, Wired for Story. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Hang on just a minute. Before we take that pause, let's talk about self-care in the new year. Small actions can make a big impact to our well-being, like eating more vegetables, 
taking a daily walk, or not being flaky by treating our hair and scalp with TLC. During these cold winter months, I'm keeping my flakiness at bay with Way's new anti-dandruff shampoo. I'm really loving Way's Do More Than Drugstore new anti-dandruff shampoo that's made with salicylic acid to gently soothe dry, itchy, and irritated scalps and smells heavenly with notes of ginger and spearmint. This product helps keep snow off your shoulders and where it belongs, outside. I'm also a huge fan of Way's best-selling leave-in conditioner that helps manage frizz, tangles, flyaways, and breakage for all hair types. Way is the brainchild of celebrity hairstylist Jen Atkin, and her mission is to give consumers what they want instead of telling them what they need. That's why every product is designed for effortless hair care routines for your life, your way. Way offers a complete line of products for all hair types that promote softer, shinier, bouncier, fuller looking, healthier feeling, and happier tresses. Do more than drugstore with the new anti dandruff shampoo from Way. Go to T H E O U A I dot com and use code HH to get 15% off your entire purchase. That's 15% off your entire order at T H E O U A I dot com code HH. Now let's take that quick pause. Each day we have the intellectual freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable, regardless of external circumstance. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, urge them to seek professional support because good psychological health is vital in achieving a satisfying life. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for psychosocial educational resources to boost emotional and social intelligence. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness? Sharing is caring. Pay it forward by spreading the word to your tribe through social media. Find us at Harvesting Happiness on Facebook and me at Lisa Kamen on Twitter. And we're back continuing the conversation with Lisa Crone. We're talking about story crafting, using brain science to share our narratives. Let's return to the conversation. So Lisa, we're talking about the need for story as human beings. But I also want to touch upon how we are wired to engage or not in this present day and age. Because you write in your book, we're wired to live in a world we don't live in anymore. So, yeah, what I would like to talk about again is the way that we're wired. And it's so important to understand that that wiring was put in place about 100,000 years ago. And as we were talking about before, that's when you know our need, our, our ability to think rationally and our need to belong to a group became hardwired because in order to belong to a group, that is what allowed us to band together. And at that time, when that before that happened, we were, I think, in about um, the middle of the food chain, and that allowed us to leap to the beginning. And the point is, is that back then, the world was static for thousands and thousands of years, for eons, so that everything that we knew, the way the world was when we were born, the way the world was when we died, was exactly the same. And there's Dunbar's number, Robin Dunbar, an evolutionary psychologist out of Oxford. Dunbar's number is 150, which he says even to this day, we have the ability to maybe know at least you know, tangentially and close 150 people. Back then, wow. it was 150 people max in your life that you'd know full stop. So the way that we our brains developed is once you learned something when you were young, it became encoded as permanent 
and universal. And we're still that way. So then rather than thinking, this is how our family does it, this is how our culture sees the world, again, it's this is how the world is, which is why it's so hard to change someone's mind. Again, not because they're stumbled or self-centered or, or even done more tragically misinformed, but because our wiring causes us to believe that our view is the only view. And again, as I think I said before, that's what helps us have knowing it. If we know that fact, it helps us have that self-compassion and why we hold on so hard to something that we've already believed, especially if our group believes it. Because at that point, to, to go against the group means we might get ostracized. And interestingly, that, that emotional pain of being ostracized travels the same neural pathways as does physical pain. So it's very hard to change on that level. And again, that gives us that self-compassion because it's not like, oh, just change your mind. Oh, just learn this. You know, I'm going to give you this new fact. Why hasn't that you know, suddenly opened your eyes? Yeah, dingus. It doesn't you work know, that that's way. what I want to say to somebody. What, what about this is so hard to get? Yeah. But yet it is, right? Exactly. And I think sort of the key thing to think of is that in order to change somebody's mind, you have to really, and this is so hard, you have to step out of your mindset and into their mindset. Yes. Amen. That's it. That's the secret sauce, right? Yeah. But when what's hard about it is you have to do it without judging them, without rolling your eyes, which is, and I know it is insanely hard, but here's the thing. Everybody believes that what they're doing is the right thing. So when you're trying to step into somebody else's mindset, you're not bringing your own reasons for why they're doing what they're doing. You are trying to step into their reasons. How do they see the world? What is their belief system that makes them think, I'm doing the right thing for everybody. And if only I could convince you of it. So the question is never, wait, what are they doing? The question is always, 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 why are they doing it? But again, not why based on your belief system or our belief system, but why based on their belief system. And that's hard. It's a practice. Yeah, it's a practice and it means empathy. Yeah. And empathy is a practice. I think, well, in my experience, no one, myself included, is 100% empathetic 100% of the time. It's impossible. No, it's impossible. That's true. I mean, I think that one of the biggest fallacies we've got is this notion that a person can be perfect, that there is a perfect something. And I always think, how could anything be perfect when the only constant is change? Because <laughs> it means what was perfect five minutes ago is no longer perfect. <laughs> That's it, true. <laughs> it is. It is just a practice and stepping out. And so much comes at us from so, I mean, these days, especially so much information comes at us. I think I read, and this was years ago, so it's probably quaint at this at this point, but that, you know, we, we learn more, you know, in a day, uh, there's more information in one Sunday New York Times than we had to know in our entire lives in the Middle Ages. And I'm sure that is exponentially more now. So it is hard. There is no one right way. It's just being open and not not judging until you get to the place where you really understand where someone's coming from. And then, yeah, you, you definitely might. And you probably are judging anyway. And it's being kind to yourself for that because it's just so hard 
not to, but understanding that deeper why somebody's doing something is the place where it might give you insight into, okay, given who they are and given how they see the world, here's a place where they might see a fallacy in that belief, in that thing they're holding on to. And it's allowing them to see that on their own, not you telling them, that is the key to getting somebody to change their mind, getting somebody to see it clearly. But, you know, as they say, nobody listens until they feel heard. And that brings us back to the empathy. And then empathy ties to the famous V word. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Vulnerability. I mean, it's so, we're taught even as children, I mean, even especially as children, not to be vulnerable, not to let someone know what you're really thinking, you know, not to show them. And interesting, I think the ultimate key to everything, the key to connection with everybody. And the key to being, and this is such a misunderstood concept, I think both out there in society and therefore, you know, in literature as in life, as in literature, in writing is, is the notion of being likable. And the way that we tend to think of being likable, what makes you like someone is that it means being, this brings us back to that word we were saying a second ago, perfect, which is defined as never doing anything that would make anybody feel even slightly uncomfortable as governed by the rules of polite society. And that does not make people likable. In fact, it usually makes you not like somebody and wonder what they're doing in the basement. I think that- Yeah, exactly. You know? Perfect, perfect definition. But we tend to think that we can't show them who we really are. And the key to being seen, heard, and valued and likable is to be relatable. And what that is defined as, as being vulnerable, having the courage to be vulnerable, having the courage to show where you aren't really sure, having the courage to show where you might've made a mistake, having the courage to say something where you're sure if you say it, everybody's not going to like you or think there's something wrong with you. And really, almost always people are going, oh my gosh, me too. Oh my gosh, that insight there, that's taught me something. I've learned something. The point is vulnerability isn't a liability, even though we've been taught to feel that it is. Vulnerability is a strength. And the more you open up that way, the more than other people open up. I mean, it is really, I think, the key to everything, to all communication. It is an emotional lubricant. Yeah. Yes. Because it says, I'm willing to show you who I am. I'm willing. We've all got that sort of weird thing. I mean, I think all stories on one level are about the cost of human connection. What do I need to give up in order to feel safe and to be part of this tribe or, you know, to have a friend or a, you know, a mate or whatever that is. And so often we're like, okay, I want you to like me. So I'm going to show you my perfect societally defined, you know, (laughs) right, exactly. My Instagram. I mean, I'll show you all of that. And, but then if you like me, I'm going to feel insecure because I'm going to think, what if you find out about the real me? Then you're not yeah. going to like me. And there's part of me that's going to resent it because I'm going to think you don't really know me. So it's, it's really, really, it's hard. It is hard, I think, is the point. It's hard. And yet with the practice, it gets a little bit easier. And it does make for a richer, deeper, more meaningful story. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's the only thing that actually gives us connection. Yeah. That is how we connect to other people. I think society has taught us 
that, you know, that they give us ways we're supposed to be. And the, the deal that we make is if I conform to whatever, you know, my particular society, my particular religion, my particular, you know, family says is the way you're supposed to be, the way you're supposed to, you know, conduct yourself in society, in polite society. If I do that, then my needs will be met because other people will like me. But I mean, stories are not about what we project on the surface. They're about what's going on beneath the surface. You know, I'm, I love to tell the story of there was a student at UCLA and she said, she said, I know on the surface, I look really put together. And she really did. She said, but inside I'm a raging mess and I'm trying to keep all of you from seeing it. Stories yeah. about the raging mess inside. Stories about what we keep hidden that ironically actually is what would allow us to build the connection with other people. Yes, indeed. And, you know, that is being perfectly imperfect or imperfectly exactly. perfect, right? Either You could say it either way, and it has th that kind of meaning, right? That the willingness to self-disclose or be seen is what really binds us to one another. Exactly. Because there is no perfect. We made it up. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't exist, which is why we all feel lesser than because we've got this notion of what perfect is and it just literally doesn't exist. So, yeah, I think that's exactly where connection comes from. It's the only place connection comes from. Lisa Crone, thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you. This was a real pleasure. Yeah. We're talking about story or die, how to use brain science to engage, persuade, and change minds in business and in life. My guest today, once again, has been Lisa Crone. To learn more, please visit wiredforstory.com. On Twitter, you could find her at Lisa Crone, and that's C-R-O-N, and on Instagram at Wired for Story. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen on behalf of my guest, Lisa Crone, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes from our mental muscle toning libraries at HarvestingHappinessTalkRadio.com, Toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, Amazon, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about my global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following me on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced by me, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, Andrea Mengeli, Robin Boyd, Andrea Daly, and the awesome team at Podfly Productions, including Eric Begay, Kimberly Beck, and Alec Gus, in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.